0: ...transforming nice girls from the suburbs into hammer-horror vampires. Inclining her head, Liz once again touched her cheek to the silky scarlet nap of her scarf, enveloping herself in a faint-scented miasma which brought Mark's physical presence, his eyes and his mouth and his hair rushing home to her. He had bought her the scent from Guerlain on the Champs-Élysées, wildly unsuitable needless to say, and the scarf from Dior on the Avenue Montaigne. He had paid cash, she later told her, so that there would be no paper trail. He had always had an unerring instinct for the tradecraft of adultery. She remembered every detail of the evening. On the way back from Paris, where he had been interviewing an actress, he had arrived without warning at Liz's basement flat in Kentish Town. She'd been in the bath, listening to La Bohème, and trying half heartedly to make sense of an article in The Economist, and suddenly there he was, and the floor was strewn with expensive white tissue paper, and the place was reeking gorgeously and poignantly of vol de nuit. Afterwards they had opened the bottle of duty free Mouet, and climbed back into the bath together. Isn't Shauna expecting you? Liz had asked guiltily. She's probably asleep, Mark answered cheerfully. She's had her sister's kids all weekend. And you, meanwhile. I know. It's a cruel world, isn't it? The thing that had baffled Liz at first was why he had married Shauna in the first place. From his descriptions of her, they seemed to have nothing in common whatever. Mark Callender was feckless and pleasure-loving and possessed of an almost feline perceptiveness. A quality which made him one of the most sought-after profilists in print journalism while his wife was an unbendingly earnest feminist academic. She was forever hounding him for his unreliability. He was forever evading her humorless wrath. There seemed no purpose to any of it. But Shauna was not Liz's problem. Mark was Liz's problem. The relationship was complete madness, and if she didn't do something about it soon could well cost her her job. She didn't love Mark and she dreaded to think of what would happen if the whole thing was forced out into the open. For a long time it had looked as if he was going to leave Shauna, but he hadn't, and Liz now doubted that he ever would. Shauna, she had gradually come to understand, was the negative to his positive charge, the A.C. to his D.C., the Y's to his Morcombe. Between them they made up a fully functioning unit. And sitting there in the halted train it occurred to her that what really excited Mark was the business of transformation. Descending on Liz, ruffling her feathers, laughing at her seriousness, magicking her into a bird of paradise. If she had lived in an airy modern flat overlooking one of the London parks, with wardrobes full of exquisite designer clothes, then she would have held no interest for him at all. She really had to end it. She hadn't told her mother about him, needless to say, and in consequence, whenever she stayed the weekend with her in Wiltshire, she had to endure a well-intentioned homily about meeting someone nice. "'I know it's difficult when you can't talk about your job,' her mother had begun the night before, lifting her head from the photo album that she was sorting out, "'but I read in the paper the other day that over two thousand people work in that building with you and that there are all sorts of social activities you can do.' Why don't you take up amateur dramatics or Latin American dancing or something? Mum, please. She imagined a group of Northern Ireland desk officers and A4 surveillance men descending on her with eyes blazing, maracas shaking and coloured ruffles pinned to their shirts. Just a suggestion, said her mother mildly, and turned back to the album. A minute or two later she lifted out one of Liz's old class photos. "'Do you remember Robert Dewey?' "'Yes,' said Liz cautiously. "'Lived in Tisbury, peed in his pants at the Stonehenge picnic. "'He's just opened a new restaurant in Salisbury, round the corner from the playhouse.' "'Really?' murmured Liz. "'Fancy that.' "'This was a flanking attack, and what it was really about was her coming home. "'She had grown up in the small octagonal gatehouse,' of which her mother was now the sole tenant, and the unspoken hope was that she should return to the country and settle down before spinsterhood and the city of dreadful night claimed her forever. Not necessarily with Rob Dewey, he of the sodden shorts, but with someone similar, someone with whom at intervals she could enjoy French cuisine and the theatre and all the other metropolitan amenities to which she had no doubt grown accustomed. Extricating herself from the maternal web last night had meant that Liz hadn't got on the motorway until ten p.m., and hadn't reached the Kentish town flat until midnight. When she let herself in, she found that the washing she'd put on on Saturday morning was lying in six inches of cloudy water in the machine, which had stopped mid-cycle. It was now far too late to start it again without annoying the neighbors, so she rooted through the dry-cleaning pile for her least crumpled work outfit, hung it over the bath, and took a shower in the hope that the steam would restore a little of its elan. When she finally made it to bed, it was almost 1 a.m. She had managed about five and a half hours sleep, and felt puffy-eyed, adrift on a tide of fatigue. With a gasp and a long, flatulent shudder, the tube train restarted. She was definitely going to be late. Chapter 2 Thames House, the headquarters of MI5, is on Millbank. A vast and imposing edifice of Portland stone, eight stories in height, it crouches like a great pale ghost a few hundred yards south of the Palace of Westminster. That morning, as always, Millbank smelt of diesel fumes in the river. Clutching her coat around her against the rain-charged wind, watching for the sodden plane-tree leaves on which it was all too easy to turn an ankle, Liz hurried up the entrance steps. Bag-swinging, she pushed open one of the doors into the lobby, raised a quick hand in greeting to the security guards at the desk, and slotted her smart pass into the barrier. The front of one of the security capsules opened. She stepped inside and was briefly enclosed. Then, as if she'd travelled light years in an instant, the rear door slid open, and she stepped out into another dimension. Thames House was a hive, a city of steel and frosted glass, and Liz felt a subtle shift inside herself as she crossed its security threshold, and was borne noiselessly upwards to the fifth floor. The lift doors opened, and she turned left and moved at speed towards five AX, the agent runners' section. This was a large open plan office lit by strip lights, and lent a faintly seedy character by the clothes stand that stood by each desk. These were hung with the agent runner's work clothes. In Liz's case, a worn pair of jeans, a black carrimore fleece, and a zip-up leather jacket. Her desk was spare, a grey terminal, a touch-tone phone, an FBI mug, and flanked to one side by a combination-locked cupboard, from which she took a dark blue folder. "'And coming into the home straight,' murmured Dave Armstrong from the next desk, his eyes locked to his computer screen." Courtesy of the bloody Northern Line, gasped Liz, spinning the cupboard lock. The train just stopped for at least ten minutes in the middle of nowhere. Well, the driver could hardly sit and smoke a joint in the station, could he? Asked Armstrong reasonably. But Liz, folder in hand and minus coat and scarf, was already halfway to the exit. En route to room 640, one flight up she hurried into a washroom to check her appearance. The mirror returned an image of unexpected composure. Her fine, mid-brown hair fell more or less evenly about the pale oval of her face. The sage green eyes were a little bruised by fatigue, perhaps, but the overall result would serve. Encouraged, she pressed on upwards. The joint counter-terrorist group, of which she had been a member for the best part of a year, met at 8.30 a.m. every Monday morning. The meeting's purpose was to coordinate operations relating to terror networks and to set weekly intelligence targets. The group was run by Liz's 45-year-old head of section, Charles Weatherby, and made up of MI5 investigators and agent runners and liaison officers from MI6, GCHQ, and Metropolitan Police Special Branch, with home office and foreign office attending as required, It had been created immediately after the World Trade Center atrocity. Following the Prime Minister's insistence that there must be no question of terror-related intelligence being compromised by lack of communication or turf wars of...